the good old Grateful Dead cast, the official podcast of the Grateful Dead. I'm Rich Mahan with Jesse Jarno, exploring the music and legacy of the Grateful Dead for the committed and the curious. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow deadheads, welcome to season seven of the good old Grateful Dead cast. I'm your co-host, Rich Mahan. Thank you very much for tuning in. This episode is the second in a two-part series on Ron Pigpen McKernan as we commemorate the life of the original Grateful Dead frontman on the 50th anniversary of his passing. Head on over to dead.net slash deadcast and check out all of our past episodes, including complete seasons one through six, and you can link from there to your favorite podcasting platform so you can listen how you like to listen. Please help this podcast, subscribe, hit that like button, and if the spirit moves you, leave us a review. Thank you very much. Very kind of you. Have you checked out the transcripts we now have available for many of your favorite Deadcast episodes? Well, head over to dead.net slash deadcast dash index and click the transcript link on the episode you want to explore, including the recently uploaded season six transcripts. Timing is everything, and as we salute Pig Pen in this episode, it's only appropriate there be some music to come along with us on this trip. Announcing History of the Grateful Dead, Volume 1, Bears Choice, 50th Anniversary Remaster. This is the original album, newly remastered by Grammy Award-winning engineer David Glasser, using plangent processes from the original analog two-track tapes, recorded live by Owsley Bear Stanley at the famed Fillmore East on February 13th and 14th, 1970. There's two versions, a black 180-gram vinyl edition and a limited-edition custom vinyl version available exclusively at dead.net. You can pre-order any and all of the Bears' Choice 50th Anniversary Remaster releases and merch over at dead.net. Thanks to everyone who's left their stories over at stories.dead.net. We're now asking you to share your stories of serendipity, miracles, and the most unbelievable, craziest stories ever told. Share those stories over at stories.dead.net, and you just may hear yourself on the Deadcast. Today's episode continues our deep dive into the life of Ron Pigpen McKernan. Thanks in great part to the generosity of the McKernan family and Jim Sullivan, who has taken great care to preserve Pigpen's archive and many priceless McKernan family keepsakes. Welcome back to the good old Grateful Dead cast. Here's Jesse Jarno. I went to my door and my door was locked. I went to my window and my window was blocked. I jumped right back. I shook my head, great big rounder in my folding bed. I shot through the window, broke the glass. I never seen a little run around so fast. He's on the road again. Join the phone, at your bone, he been on the road again. He's on the road again. Join the at your bone, he been on the road again. That was Mother McCree's Uptown Jug Champions performing at the top of the tangent in Palo Alto, California in the summer of 1964 doing She's On the Road Again, originally recorded by the Memphis Jug Band. Ron Pigpen McKernan is playing harmonica and singing back up there, Jerry Garcia on lead vocal. Sometime later in 1964, or maybe early in 1965, it was Pigpen who suggested that the members of the Jug Band grab some electric instruments off the wall at Dana Morgan Music and try playing some rock and roll. Well, you'll think of your house, it is 
was an early Grateful Dead version of She's on the Road Again, probably from May of 1966. That's the band we'll be talking about today, the Palo Alto folk and blues freaks who transformed into psychedelic rock heroes. Before we get going, we wanted to shout out Blair Jackson and Reagan McMahon's tremendous pigpen oral history from the final issue of The Golden Road in 1993. It was an enormous help as a jumping-off point for researching pigpen's life. We've posted a link at dead.net slash deadcast. In our last episode, we went pretty deep into the McKernan family archives. We'll be doing a little bit more of that today. One document there is a scrap of paper that seems to be a song list in Ron McKernan's handwriting. Please welcome back Sully, the guide and guardian of the Pigpen archives. Too much monkey business. You know, who do you love? I'm a man. You know, walking the dog. Yeah, a lot of Chuck Berry, you know, follow the sun. There's some Beatles in there, you know, so it had to be. You know, right around that time. Can't buy me love. (laughs) (laughs) There was really no provenance, but it's obviously really early. I mean, you can tell it's all folded up. And he just folded it up and stuck it in his pocket. And then when he got home, he probably just shoved it in a drawer. So where and when lost the time, I don't know. We poked into it a little more in our Operator episode in 2020. As musicians around the local folk clubs, the former jug band was already at least a little popular. Even before they'd played their first show, the band had a built-in fan base from the social scene they'd found around folk music, which included some places to practice. This is from David Gantz's 1992 interview with Bob Matthews, Sue Swanson, and Connie Bonner. In the very early days prior to really playing anywhere, there was a lot of rehearsal, and they played at Sue's backyard a few times, and they played in my living room one time, uh, when my parents weren't there. No, undoubtedly. I, th- I think that was a prerequisite. Uh, but the parents found out, and to this day, my mother still reminds me about the uh, ripple bottles in the garden. <laughs> And it course, was it Ripple Nut Thunderbird? No, you're right. Yeah, it was Thunderbird. 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 Come on. Absolutely. I remember the aluminum screw on <laughs> right. top and the hair. And of course, he was, he was so mean looking that you could take him anywhere. Even you know He was the same age we were, which was barely 18 at that point, probably mm-hmm. more like 17. Well, very worldly. But we could run over to East Palo Alto to Baroni's liquor store mm-hmm. and... Uh, Buy anything, man. And send him in with money, and he'd come out with whatever he asked for. Much more worldly than we were. Drink, uh, Green Death, Rainier. And yeah. If we paid for Pig's uh, Thunderbird, he'd go <laughs> in and buy us you know, two or three big bottles of uh, Green Death. Yeah. Looked at one way, there was a split occurring inside the Warlocks. We spoke a bunch with Eric Thompson in our last episode. He was part of Jerry Garcia's picking circle as part of the Black Mountain Boys and a late-period member of the Jug Band. May of 65, uh, a whole bunch of us moved into this one house on Gilman Street in Palo Alto. And so Jerry was still with Sarah, but mostly he was hanging out. There was this house, and Nelson lived there. I lived there. Pigpen lived there. Rick Shove lived there. This is the house where the day we moved in, we all had our first acid trip. Pigpen did not take any LSD, nor he he was not into any of the drugs. He was always a juicer. 
He, he was not interested in the other thing at all. It was less than a week later that the new band, The Warlocks, opened their weekly residency at Magoo's Pizza in Menlo Park. Even though pot and LSD would become major parts of the local music landscape, and that of The Warlocks most especially, Pigpen had found his new home, even if he didn't last too long on Gilman Street. Pigpen was part of that scene at that house on Gilman Street, even though he wasn't into the drugs part, he was into the scene part. Rick Shubb lived there, too, and you know about the map of the world. I most certainly do. Humbead's revised map of the world hangs on the wall next to my desk. It also plays a major role in my book, Heads, a Biography of Psychedelic America. Available from Hachette, wherever you get your books or audiobooks. Most people know Rick Shubb as the inventor and still the proprietor of Shubb Guitar Capos. But Rick is also a brilliant artist. In 1967 and 1968, he and the late great Earl Crabb conceptualized and created Humbead's Map, sold in head shops and by mail order. It looks a bit like Pangea, a smooshed-together continent that maps out the known territories of folk music and the emerging head scene, including the countries of San Francisco, Berkeley, Cambridge, New York City, and Los Angeles. The continent is surrounded by water. The ocean, just off the right downwards coast of Berkeley, is labeled the Wavy Waste. And rising from the Wavy Waste, with a trident in hand and Neptune's crown perched jauntily on his head, is the mighty pig pen. Why would Rich uh, make King Neptune pig pen? Because they lived in the same fucking house. When the Warlocks got going in May 1965, Pigpen was one of the first things about the band to make an impression. One early fan was Phil Lesh, who saw the Warlocks at Magoo's Pizza before he joined. This is from David Gans's July 1981 interview with Phil in Conversations with the Dead, which we've linked to at dead.net slash deadcast. Whenever it was that they were playing, we took acid and went down there. Harrison, myself, Peterson, Jane, and my girlfriend. And we came bopping in there, man. And it was really happening. Pigpen ate my mind. He just ate my mind with the harp. Singing the blues, man. I was just, uh, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't let you dance what I did in any way. And during the set break, Jerry takes me off uh, to a table and he says, listen, man, how'd you like to play bass in this band? Phil moved into the room across from me. And of course, he never played. He was a trumpet player. And an avant-garde musician. So Phil has his bass, and he comes over to my room and says, Eric, how does this thing work? And I said, well, it's kind of like the bottom four strings of the guitar, and so here's how you play a scale. Oh, he said, thank you very much, and went back to his room. And that was all he needed to know. So that was, that was like I, I gave Phil his first and only bass lesson. They debuted their new bassist at a gig in Hayward, in the East Bay, at Frenchie's Bikini A Go-Go. In his memoir, Phil Lesh remembered there being three people in attendance, two of them being Sue Swanson and Connie Bonner. Here's how Sue Swanson remembered it. One of my favorite Pigpen stories, I think, is when they played at, uh, in Fremont at okay. Frenchie's A Go-Go. And Frenchie's A Go-Go. And he didn't want to play, or he was too young, or he'd forgotten his ID, whatever the reason. We ended up out in the car, the two of us, while the band played, and he told me the whole story of The Hobbit. <laughs> From beginning to end, while well, they played in Frenchie's. Last episode, we discussed Pigpen and Jerry's involvement in Troy Weidenheimer's Palo Alto party band, The Zodiacs. 
the Warlocks began as a blues band. It was really just like extension of the Zodiacs, except Garcia was playing guitar instead of playing bass, and Garcia was learning all of the Freddie King stuff that Troy could play. It all built on that, but I will also say this, that it was obvious when the Warlocks started almost immediately that this was going someplace. In the fall of 1965, the Warlocks fell deeper into the circle around the novelist Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters, who'd been living together at Kesey's place in La Honda in the Santa Cruz Mountains. One of the newest La Honda residents was Zodiac's fan Denise Kaufman, who you might know as a member of the righteous band Ace of Cups. Coming up to La Honda, I was living at La Honda by then, and so I didn't I didn't go a lot to a lot of gigs of theirs or anything. We were all playing. I mean, Jerry, we were playing at La Honda, mostly like around a fire or something, not the band set up playing. Kreutzmann, I knew, but I didn't ever like have a hangout with him. I did with Jerry a lot, with Pigpen a lot, and with Bobby some, and more as, as time went on, because all through the years, Bobby and I have been good friends. But Pigpen and I would just cruise together. You know, we just cruised around Palo Alto or around La Honda. Went to his parents' house with him a few times. He did drink, which I didn't. But so, you know, that whole part was a little different. But he was just kind of kind and shy. And we really connected about the music that we loved. I had gone to see Bobby Blueland in San Francisco. I was going to see James Brown. He was such a special person. I think he he was sort of emulating a lifestyle in a certain way of people he whose music he loved so much. I wouldn't have been drawn to him if he was like a you know outrageous, nasty, drunk kind of thing. To me, he was just sweet and kind and thoughtful. There's a clip we've used a few times, which we're going to use again here, of Pigpen and Ken Babs in dialogue at the Fillmore Acid Test in January 1966. Coming through one of these There ain't no power on the stage. Come on, just keep on. No electricity on the stage. Fix it. This is the captain speaking. We have reached our first emergency, and we haven't even got by the boundaries. Well, why don't of you rectify it pretty damn quick? Let's everybody put their worries and threats to mind to produce some electricity for the state. It's about time to get it ready. Yes, because there is wires here. all around here plugged into electricity all around here. Now just reach down, everybody. Hey, man, stop your babbling and fix these microphones. We need some power. 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 And we'll probably use that clip again sometime. It's true, Pigpen wasn't an acid taker, but he certainly hung with the acid takers, right there alongside his bandmates and traveling with the Merry Pranksters. And like his bandmates, he came away with a bushel of Neil Cassidy stories. This is from Pigpen's 1970 interview with Hank Harrison, now in the Dead Archive. This is truly one of the gnarlier audio sources we've used on this podcast, so apologies for that, but it's too cool not to feature. I'll try to translate the action on the other side of the tape fuzz. This is Pig talking about the Trips Festival, the Portland Acid Test, and Neil Cassidy. I think one of the, the major times that, that I was with him was at the, uh, the Trips Festival at uh, Long Trips Hall. Like, I remember one time on the way to the Portland Acid Test, we all got in the yeah. bus. He roared up, you know, he was heading for Portland. The date of the Portland Acid Test is in dispute. Sometime in late December 1965 or early January 1966, a truly hit-and-run operation with no print documentation that we know of. Some of the most vivid memories are of the trip north, when the dead actually rode with the pranksters in further with Cowboy Neil at the wheel to, 
Well, we'll let Pigpen tell you about the bus's destination. Yeah, well, Neil was right. He was rapping in the microphone like he always does. Going through the toll gate, you just you should have seen them toll takers. Look yeah. at it. Oh, yeah. went through, you know, all that shit. And so he went up and up by Maxwell, California. We burned out a, a back wheel bearing and had to stop at a gas station. We were stuck there for nearly 24 hours. Depending how you annotate Jerry Base, there might need to be a separate entry for a date in Maxwell, California in this window. We took a couple of electrical cords and threw them out the windows and plugged them into this outlet they had on the side of the gas station and turned on the tape recorders and the guitars and, you know, the whole thing and, you know, did the whole stick. And so finally we decided it wouldn't work and it would take too long. We had to get there. The bus mm-hmm. couldn't get fixed. So we rented a truck. Eventually, with prankster ingenuity, they hit the road. Rigged up lights on the inside of the box on the back of the truck. Rigged an intercom system between the cab and the back. Oh, and one day. All in a few hours. Yeah, oh, yeah. And took off. They the were amazing. The road hit back, but Pigpen got to witness Cassidy in full flight. We were right up through this, you know, winding mountain road with, like, snow drifts eight or ten feet high on the sides, you know, and, and icy roads and blizzards and all that stuff. And Neil is there with... Like, you know, one hand on the bottle of wine and the other hand popping speed and the other hand playing with Anne and the other hand talking yeah. to the microphone <laughs> and the other hand driving the truck yeah. and, you know, <laughs> and on and on. Same. And there it was, man, yeah. you know, give me some of that wine. Yeah. The trip up was perhaps more exciting than the trip there. And it was a good trip. We got, we finally got to Portland and found the place and we went in and it was still snowing and we went in there and set things up and I spent uh, quite a bit of time in a cloakroom, sleeping on yeah. the floor with about nine other people, you know, yeah. flop. And then they kicked us out at 12 o'clock. Things were getting pretty exciting for the Grateful Dead, though. And then we decided, well, you know, what the fuck, let's move to L.A. So we went to L.A. And I moved out of my parents' house. And we the acid both, test out in L.A. Yeah, it was when we got hung up with the acid test and started, you know, moving around and doing stuff instead of being, like, stationary. Members of the Dead would sometimes speak of Pigpen being an anchor, and that was part of his character, too. Denise Kaufman told a slightly longer version of this story in our LA 66 episode. Summarizing briefly, it begins at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur and continues with Denise volunteering for a program in LA to study the psychic abilities of psychedelic users, staying with one of the professors running the project. I was staying in his apartment in Westwood, and I didn't really know L.A. very much. And he built this thing in his living room that looked like a coffin, and he was painting it. And it was a little, you know, he was quite a bit older than I was, and I was like, eh, I'm not so sure about this. And I knew the gangsters were somewhere in L.A., and, you know, we're kind of heading up toward the, you know, the Watts acid test, but not there yet. Before cell phones, how do you find people? And somehow I was able to find Pigpen. I called somebody and said, oh, yeah, Pigpen's staying at this place. And I called him, you know, and he goes, well, where are you? And I'm like, I'm in Westwood, Los Angeles. I need to get out of here. And he goes, I'm coming. Just tell me where you are. He was so wonderful. And he just totally came and, and rescued me. And I was like, okay, I feel more, you know, I'm in my, my crew. Pigpen was one of the few non-tripping witnesses to the Watts acid test. We'll let him set the scene. Big plastic garbage can full of punch, which was loaded. That big plastic garbage can would, in fact, be the non-proverbial electric Kool-Aid, the night the electric Kool-Aid got its name. We talked about this evening a good bit in our LA 66 episode, 
with perspectives from some of the other participants. But it's fascinating to get Pig's version, which puts the story into perspective with the recording. In some ways, this is also the night that Pigpen's role as the non-tripping band member became solidified. By the time the bear got all the stuff set up, and everything was, you know, halfway working, yeah, it was like one in the morning or something like that. Before the band was fully set up, Pig was on the mic. So then we got into kind of a gospel thing. I was doing a little gospel rap, you know, just by myself. Yeah. And I, everybody was getting, you know, into yeah. it in some kind of rhythmic way. I want to know, can you find your mind? Oh, yeah! We can tell by the sound of a very high Bob Weir that the band hasn't played yet. Between this now, if you're having a sense, you know, you're going to give him your money. I want but you this ain't got no I'm business singing. to hate that man for doing that because you, you know that? there must be something wrong with him. Wow. Uh, I want to tell you about it. One there was this chick in the other room. And so she was freaking out. She was, who cares, who cares, and stuff like that. And somebody took a microphone into the other room and it went through the tape loop. So everything she said echoed back on her. Who cares? Who cares? That was echoing all through the room. That was like the universal soul cry of the universe. That's we all wonder. And so it was that Pigpen became the unusual purveyor of good vibes. You got to think about your neighbor. You got to think about your friend. You got to think about your brother. You got to think about your sister. You got to think about it. Everybody that means something to you. Yeah. yeah. I'm talking about it now. Yeah. yeah. Now, do you think that you know something? It was a group effort to bring the Who Care Girls back to Earth. Check out the LA 66 episode for more of that story. It's a role Pigpen would come to play for both his bandmates and the audience in years to come. One of my favorite descriptions is by Jerry Garcia speaking with Blair Jackson. He was our anchor. We'd be out of our minds, just yoing, 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 and we'd be tethered to Pigpen. You could rely on Pigpen for a reality check. Hey man, is it too weird or what? He'd say, no man, it's cool. Everybody used him on that level. He was like gravity. Hell's Angels would be sitting around his room, fucked up on acid, and Pigpen would be taking care of them. It was so great. Pigpen was like a warm fire, a cozy fire. After that, after everything was over, we went over to the Watchtower. But we couldn't get in. Because they city money, yeah, they turned it into a thing where you know you got to pay fifty cents or whatever quarter, you know, to get in to see it. And the caretaker from outside, the caretaker was there, so we just all wandered around, you know, and it just got weirder and weirder. The visit to the Watts Towers was a profound moment for Jerry Garcia, especially. There's a segment about this in Amir Barlev's essential documentary, A Long Strange Trip, which we also referenced, but that's Pigpen's version of it. Mostly in L.A. The Grateful Dead got down to the business of being a band. This is how Bobby Peterson remembered their house in L.A. The lady said that living next door to you was like to have a uh, freight train going through your house 90 miles The first original Warlock song was Caution, Do Not Stop on the Tracks, written sometime in mid-1965. The groove they borrowed from Mystic Eyes by them. For the lyrics, Pig reached into his pig bag. I 
early 1966, Owsley made a ton of tapes of the dead at work, live and in rehearsal. They'd reveal a few things about Pigpen as the dead leaned deeper into their songwriting. Here's how Jerry Garcia put it in 1975 to Peter Simon. Pigpen had influenced a lot of what we were doing just by, because of who he was and that, that our, the music had to be able to include him. In a way, Pigpen, technically at any rate, Pigpen represented sort of like the low watermark. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and we couldn't go past that because if we came up with anything that was too complicated for him, he couldn't play it. You know? Really? And so, so everything was structured to, to be able, at least includable in Pigpen's orbit, or else he wouldn't play. You know, uh-huh. he, he, he'd lay out or stuff. Some of Bear's early tapes reveal that while Pigpen's bandmates were willing to devote themselves to rehearsals of complicated material, Pig wasn't always into that. And though there was a divide between Pigpen and the band on that front, he continued to contribute in other very musical ways. Though none of the songs would make it onto an official release in that era, he was an integral part of the band's first attempts at songwriting, including his original, You See a Broken Heart, and at least the lyrics for Keep Rolling By. One Pigpen song that turns up on the LA 66 tapes, Taste Bud, survived right up through the session for the band's first album in 1967. Pig's playing some nice blues piano here. Just a little while, a little while for day. I couldn't find no satisfaction. Turn my pillow where my baby lay. Though Pigpen would play upright piano occasionally with the dead over the next few years, it was mostly a road not taken. Though there are very few pictures from the Warlocks era, it seems Pigpen played on a Farfisa duo organ in the earliest days, switching to a Vox Continental after the band's move to L.A. in 1966. The band and Pigpen settled into a relationship where he served as kind of a specialist. He sang Pigpen songs. During our L.A. 66 episode, we spoke with Don Douglas, who served on Owsley Stanley's Sound Squad during the L.A. period, and went on to help with some acid-making himself. Some people have described the early dead as Pigpen and his backup band, and I probably how I saw them. I mean, this is not to take anything away from the the brilliance of Derek Garcia and the others, but that's kind of how it came across in the beginning. This was a blues band led by Ron McKernan. Yeah. And besides being a total sweetheart under that crusty exterior, um, he was sure, I mean, for a white guy, damn, he was good, you know. I remember I was a stranger turning My sweet little angel, she's so far away I was over 21 and he was under 21. I was just over 21. He was under 21. And Tim had a, a 1959 Hillman convertible. So we'd go out and I'd buy a bottle of Red Mountain, I mean a gallon, a jug of, of Red Mountain wine. So in the passenger seat, Pigpen would have this between his legs to steady it and I would drive and we'd go carousing around LA. I do not and cannot sing, but drunk i could sing with him right so we'd like to be wailing away and having a good old time and then we would 
go to places like, for instance, there was a, a place, I think the lighthouse in Hermosa Beach. It would, it had a section for people who are 18 to 21. They wouldn't serve alcohol, but of course we were fine by that point. And we would sit there and we, like we heard the temptations and Pigpen said to me, if you ever want to see what's happening next, look at the black axe. And he also, we went to see a friend of his who played in a 1950s-style dance band with two-tone jackets and the whole thing. And he said, you will find that fans tend to like one kind of music or another, but musicians like all kinds of music as a rule, and he was just fine listening to this 1950s dance band. So, yeah, we would do that, and we would come back pretty late. And at one point, someone went, we, we were all up together and everybody, but Pigman was stone on ass. And we were, Owsley and, and Melissa had a, their bedroom was on the top floor of this house where the electronics equipment was also. And we, we would also sometimes gather there because it was, it was pretty big. And they were saying something about, you know, guys doing out who knows what. And I made some joke about we were looking for an all night harmonica store and they ended up using that name and I guess for one of their one of their dances or something like that. After LA, the band decamped briefly to Olin Poly, a palatial estate in Marin County, north of San Francisco. We were living at Olin Poly before. And then we ended up living in Lagunitas. Yeah, it's Camp Lagunitas and Big Brother lived about I don't know, a mile or two away from Sadly this is pretty much when Pigpen's storytelling breaks off chronologically on the Hank Harrison interview tape. Thanks to the late Hank Harrison, at least for this one specific thing. Of course you realize that everything I've told you is a lie. That's still cool, Pig. With Big Brother a mile or two away, Pigpen reconnected with and began an on-off fling and lifelong deep friendship with Janis Joplin. The dead relocated to 710 Ashbury in San Francisco in the fall. Sue Swanson. I heard actually a wonderful story about Pigpen just this week, an Eileen story about Pigpen. She, 710 Ashbury Street, we'd all moved up there, and she went by to visit and got stuck there. What a terrible fate, had to spend the night, right? Oh, we always hated it when that happened. And at late night, and she was asleep on the couch up in the upper 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 living living room, room, right? right. She looks, she hears this noise and looks up, and in the doorway is this great looming, hulking figure, and she goes, oh, God, it's Pigpen, you know, she's like, what's he going to do? And he walks over, covers her up with a blanket, and then walks away. That was Pigpen. sweet man. Connie Bonner. I remember Sue and I washing his hair for him, which is something that he took great delight in, asking us to help him wash this great, long, thick black hair and bending him over the kitchen sink at 710 Ashbury really? and helping him wash. We, he loved it, and we just adored doing it for him. Later in 1966 as well, Pigpen met the person who became the love of his life, a black woman named Veronica Grant, known most often just as V. V moved into 710 Ashbury within the year, becoming another one of the band's housemates. In the 60s way, they'd be partners for the rest of Pigpen's life. With the only TV in the house, their room at 710 just off the kitchen became its own hangout, with Pigpen acting as genial Southern comfort drinking host. Here's an anecdote from Eric Thompson. A buddy of mine was at the 710 Ashbury Street house, and Pigpen lived uh, downstairs right by the kitchen. And so my friend, uh, Owsley, 
we're hanging out in the kitchen and, you know, Osby's kind of opening the refrigerator and Tigpen comes out. Hey, man, what are you putting in our food? Here's Jerry Garcia speaking with Ben Fong Torres in 1975. One of the the things about the Grateful Dead was that we never had that, the glamour flash that the airplane or uh, the others that he got involved with, Moby Dick or whatever, or Moby Grave, Mm -hmm. had, you know, they 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 were always sort of glamorous and and sellable, and we never had that thing, you know, that glossy image that could be dealt with on that level, you know. They would see Pigpen and just forget it, you know. But he was identifiable. He was their first frontman, and his face was emblazoned on the band's first T-shirts and posters before the band's first album even came out. In 1992, Connie Bonner's first Pigpen shirt was still in service. Why he is immortalized here on this T-shirt. Here, here we go. <laughs> he was the chosen one. You're wearing an original Pigpen T-shirt. Oh, absolutely, and a deal is, at two dollars and fifty cents. Good old Grateful Dead. The Warner Brothers marketing department wasn't quite sure what to do with the Grateful Dead, and they certainly weren't sure what to do with Pigpen. In 1969, with the release of Oxamoxoa, they ran a Pigpen lookalike contest in Rolling Stone. A few weeks later, they followed up with another full-page ad that read, in part, To be downright brutal about it, part one of our Pigpen lookalike contest that we laid on you a few weeks back is a bust. Not that there haven't been entries. There have been plenty. But so far, no one has, via black and white or color photograph, captured the panache, the bravado, the insouciance, the true and utter raunch of Mr. Penn. Just to have a mustache doesn't make it. Just to have long hair doesn't make it. Blondes don't make it. Photos with no name and address don't make it. And the pygmy from Venice, California, who wrote that contests suck doesn't make it. There were no winners. We've posted links to the ad at dead.net slash deadcast. Later that year, this is how the Warner Brothers marketing department tried pitching Mr. Penn. Hooray, 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 step right up and hear the Grateful Dead roll over and play live. Groove to the electrifying guitar wizardry of Jerry Garcia. Grind along with Phil Lesh, the fastest bass player of them all. Gasp at the legendary Big Pen, who knows no shame. The Dead explored many musical paths in their early years, and Pigpen provided the bump and grind to go along with the jug band adaptations, cowboy tunes, and polyrhythmic psychedelic launching pads. A perusal of the surviving tapes from 1966 and 1967 reveal a half-dozen songs that disappeared from Pig's repertoire after their first year or so as a band, including Alan Toussaint's Pain in My Heart, Fats Domino's Sick and Tired, The Rolling Stones' Empty Heart, and others. But in those years, the band also introduced a number of Pigpen signature numbers. Most of these were still in Pig's repertoire in 1971 and 1972, generally a good period to hit if you're looking to listen to some Pigpen. But here's a checklist of the core Pigpen with some recommended places to dive in. There were Slim Harpo's I'm a King Bee. Here it is from Ladies and Gentlemen, The Grateful Dead, April 28, 1971 at the Fillmore East. I'm a king bee. Elmore James's It Hurts Me Too, which we dove into during the Lyceum episode of our Europe 72 season. Hurts me too. 
Junior Parkers, next time you see me. You're from 100-Year Hall, Frankfurt, April 26th, 1972. Next time you see me, things won't be the same. Next time you see me. Wilson Pickett's in the Midnight Hour. Here's the Rio Nito dance hall version from September 3rd, 1967, released on Fallout from the Fill Zone. This version's over half an hour. The Olympics, good lovin'. Pretty much any of the Europe 72 versions are pretty cracklin'. This is Copenhagen, April 14th, 1972. Jimmy Reed's Big Boss Man, released on Skull and Roses in 1971, which we explored on season three of the Deadcast, side three to be exact. Big Boss Man Can't you hear me when I call course, Bobby Blue Bland's Turn On Your Love Light from Live Dead. Without a warning, you broke my heart. Taking a baby, torn it apart. And you left from a stand in the dark time. Said your love for me was time. So come on, baby, baby, please. I'm begging you, baby, and I'm on my Sonny Boy Williamson's Good Morning Little Schoolgirl, released on The Dead's debut in 1967. It was a testament to how quickly the dead were evolving that when they recorded their debut in early 1967, Good Morning Little Schoolgirl was Pigpen's only lead vocal. Not that he wasn't still singing lots with the band. That same year, he began singing Alligator, 
recorded on Anthem of the Sun, which featured some of Robert Hunter's first lyrics for The Dead, but also a verse by Pigpen, his first professional songwriting credit. Riding down the river in an old canoe A bunch of bugs in a Later in 1967, the police raided the band's home at 710 Ashbury. Pigpen and his girlfriend Veronica were among those arrested, despite being among the members of the household who weren't pot smokers. In fact, Pigpen's non-use of pot and acid was pretty well known. Columnist Herb Kane, who invented the term beatnik and helped popularize the term hippie, for better or worse, pointed this out. This is Rock Scully reiterating his point at the band's post-bus press conference while Pigpen glowered next to him. The, the statement was that Pigpen uh, does not turn on, and, and that is a true statement. In the spring of 1968, just in time for an East Coast jaunt in May, Pigpen leveled up when the band began renting a proper Hammond B3 organ for the first time. Here's how it sounded at the Fillmore East on June 14, 1968, from the bonus disc on the Fillmore West 1969 box set. The B3 is slightly undermixed, but Pig is jamming along as the band powers from Turn On Your Love Light into Caution. Pigpen wasn't a shredder, but he's easy to underestimate. disputed point in Grateful Dead scholarship is the moment in late 1968 when Pigpen and Bob Weir were nearly kicked out of the band. There's a long account of the firing, quotation marks, in Dennis McNally's book, A Long Strange Trip, dated August 1968, mentioning that the band meeting was recorded by Owsley Stanley. Please welcome back to the Deadcast, Dead Base co-founder Mike Dolgushkin. I've heard it. No one really comes out and fires them. The general idea seemed to be that Bobby and Pig weren't going to play the live gigs anymore, but they were still going to appear on the recordings. Pigpen mentioned that uh, he had a new song written, and Phil said, that's great, we'll record it. Pigpen had also quit drinking, apparently. Not long after, there were a number of shows by groups sometimes known as Jerry Garcia and Friends, sometimes as Mickey and the Heartbeats, starting in October 1968. Pigpen wasn't involved. There are also a pair of Grateful Dead recordings from the Avalon Ballroom, October 12th and 13th, that don't feature Pigpen at all. This has often been cited as material evidence of Pigpen's firing. Mike Dolgushkin points us to a brief eyewitness account on the Internet Archive. Someone who went to one of those shows said that Garcia announced Pigpen's not here. He's in the hospital taking care of his girlfriend. In fact, October 1968 is when Veronica Grant suffered a brain aneurysm and nearly died. If the firing happened at all, it's not represented on tape. Pigpen devoted enormous amounts of time helping Veronica with her recovery, which happened slowly, but happened. When the dead went to Europe in 1972, V missed the tour because she was home in nursing school. At dead.net slash deadcast, We've posted a link to Light Into Ash's deep look at this period on the Dead Essays blog. 
with a few pieces that clarify the chronology that have emerged in recent years. Around the time of the alleged firing, Phil Lesh's old music school buddy, Tom Constantin, completed his Air Force duty and enlisted with the Grateful Dead. A very aleatoric deadcast welcome to TC. There was a point when even Pigpen's continuing with the band was in question. I came into the mix just when that was going on. And maybe I provided enough of a diversion that it turned down the, the, the amplification of those problems. But they weren't a problem anymore. TC took over B3 duties most of the time for the next year and change, which is a whole other story we'll tell another day. But even during this window, Pig would return to the organ occasionally. Have no mercy in this land. The blues were Pigpen's natural territory, and his playing on Death Don't Have No Mercy still seems not only organic, but essential to the song's power. It wasn't anything even that contentious. It was just something that happened. I was ready for it. It was was acknowledged generally from in front, and it it was never a problem. It was never a question. He had a lot of dimensions within the blues. His dad had been a blues DJ. It was the opposite of a contentious relationship, and oddly complimentary. The two became road roommates. The band wasn't big enough that uh, all the band members didn't have their own hotel suite at the Ritz yet. It established an ongoing theme with the keyboard players who performed with the dead in the 60s and 70s. Ned Legion spoke with us about how well he and Pigpen got along. And here's what Donna Jean told us about Keith and Pigpen's relationship during our Europe 72 season. Complimentary. And Keith loved it. He loved Pigpen, too. We were just big Pigpen fans, still are. Apparently, it was just impossible not to love the guy. He was very different than the, the image of the biker pirate. Very gentle, very intellectual, very thoughtful. Uh, there were a couple of times I got dosed during the gig, and there was no better person to hang out with. He brought a pegboard chess set, and we played chess. I usually beat him. Not that I'm very good either. Uh, I brought some baseball cards, and we flipped cards for fun. All sorts of fun stuff like that. This is from Phil McKernan's notes on his son, as read by Sully. He liked to play games, board games, word games. He loved chess. And Pigpen and TC became roommates off the road, too, sharing a house in Novato. He did have a bunch of records, uh, several of which he turned me on, uh, Blind Willie McTell, people like that. Uh, He gave me a volume of Albert Ammon's boogie solos of sheet music which I could relate to, and I was able to play through and cop a couple of licks from. He was also reading a flambang action-adventure like Doc Savage and some of the Robert Heinlein science fiction books from the time. The same way that Pigpen shared experiences with his bandmates at the acid tests, he was likewise a member of the Planet Earth Rock and Roll Book Exchange. He turned me on to Frank Herbert's Dune, for instance, and we were all into reading this and that and the other. Jerry Garcia would bring books with him on tour. 
and I look over his shoulder and see what his what he was looking at. And I gave him a copy of Hazrat Iyad Khan's Sufi message, the volume about music. And it was all very uh, intellectually engaging. Paul Kantner was another one who would bring books on the road. He had a whole suitcase full that they would schlep around for him. For all the enthusiastic sci-fi readers in the dead scene, probably none of them held a candle to Phil McKernan, Pigpen's father. Poke around for his name on the Internet Archive, and you'll find a number of teenage letters by Phil McKernan to various sci-fi fanzines. I don't recall him playing much music at home. In fact, we didn't have a piano until after I was no longer in the band. We went piano shopping together, and we found this really built like a rock, Bear Brothers Upright. Actually, I think it was a cabinet grand, which is even more massive. I had another cabinet grand later. It looks like an upright, but they call it a cabinet grand because the strings are done vertically, but it's just, they're just as massive and big as if it were a grand piano. After TC moved out, the two remained tight, with Pigpen acting as best man at TC's wedding. But even if he didn't have a piano at his disposal, Pigpen was very tentatively showing signs of becoming a late-blooming songwriter after almost getting kicked out of the band. Oh, yes, he took it very seriously and worked on his act. Here's Jerry Garcia speaking with David Gans and Blair Jackson, now in Conversations with the Dead. Pigpen's orientation used to be straight-ahead sex. And straight-ahead, really straight-ahead, and he'd get really dirty and take a lot of ties in the blues and all that. That was his trip. He, like, occupied that position in terms of, like, if there was balance in our point of view... And Pigpen used to represent it musically. And Pigpen certainly could get woolly. Some pigs do get woolly by which we mean that some of what Pigpen sang might be considered a little more problematic in the 21st century. Good morning, little schoolgirl. Can I come home with you? I tell your mother and your papa, I'm a little schoolboy too. A few years ago at the Grateful Dead Scholars Caucus in Albuquerque, Kay Alexander presented a paper titled, Let Us Now Reconsider Pigpen examining Pigpen from a feminist point of view, and a closer look brought some surprises. Welcome to the Deadcast, Kay. The persona that he projects on stage is not angry or narcissistic or vengeful or controlling. The women he sings about are strong, independent, passionate women in their own right. He's not saying to any of them, oh, honey, I want to marry you so you can cook my meals. He's saying, I don't know where she's gone. I don't care where she's been, long as she's been doing it right. He is handing them a type of equity that was atypical for male points of view during the era when he was on stage. I don't know where she's going. I don't care where she's been, long as she's been doing it right. And I only missed seeing him by about a year. I've talked with a few women who were young and saw Pigpen and asked them how they felt about him. How were they moved by the sexual content of his music? 
And they all felt that this was somebody they, they kind of wanted to be ravished by. They, it made them feel adventurous and empowered. It didn't make them feel alienated or intimidated. Her leg up against the wall, that's pretty explicit. But, but what's the first half of that couplet? I come every time she call. I mean, this is mutual passion. This is not someone being manipulated. This is not someone being coerced. And I think that's, that's a really, really important thing to remember about Pigpen. As the front man of a 60s rock band, Pigpen was never, nor will ever be, a poster child for first, second, or third wave feminism. But when Pigpen did crowd work, it wasn't to pick up groupies. It was to match couples. One of the classic all-time versions of Turn On Your Love Light was played at Princeton on April 17, 1971. It's a great example of Pigpen in matchmaker mode. I'm just standing trying to look cool. Say, uh, say, what's your name? That's all you got to do. Ain't no reason to mess around. I think he recognized other people's shyness and what he was trying to do. It feels to me, it felt to me then and feels to me now that he was trying to break through into a place of celebration where it's okay to have these passions. It's okay for us to be in these bodies and enjoy what they do. That's not necessarily the sexual content that was being promoted in rock songs of the era. That's much more part of the blues tradition, that this is life, this is the life we live, we might as well enjoy it. An adorable running thread in Pig's raps, despite their general raunchiness, is when he extolled the virtues of his special lady friend, which he does at Princeton. Now you just found somebody, didn't you? Now you two just found somebody, that's cool. I ain't got to find nobody because I got my old lady. Ha! I sure feel nice. I'm on the reason she make me feel so nice. I'm on the reason she make me feel so good. And I'm not gonna tell you everything. And I'll tell you just a little bit. I'm not gonna tell you everything. And I'll tell you just a little bit. That show also contains one of the all-time great bits of Pigpen storytelling. Here's how Bob Weir remembered it on WMMR in 1976. One time he actually managed to sell the Brooklyn Bridge to somebody for a dollar and a quarter. I think it was a love light we were doing, and it starts out as essentially a love song. Sure. And he starts delivering his dissertation, and it just got twisted her and twisted her and twisted until finally he had some clown out of the audience that he was working with, and he, and he sold this guy the Brooklyn Bridge. Close. It was one of Pigpen's running narratives in Good Lovin' in early 71, which might be termed Lil' Pimpin'. But ultimately, this is a family podcast. Sold Brooklyn Bridge. Ask a taper for the rest. The kind of creativity displayed by Pigpen's freestyles is a bit hard to annotate and convey, but it's a mix of old blues patterns balanced with a sensibility informed by the hip comedian Lord Buckley, a thread we explored in our Operator episode. When the Grateful Dead traveled, Pigpen was a source of curiosity for the press. During their first visit to the UK in 1970, the BBC interviewed Pig backstage at the Hollywood Festival. As the camera crew enters the backstage trailer, they walk by Ozzy Osbourne outside, also on the bill. 
So imagine Ozzy 10 feet away when this is happening. It's neither a very revealing nor narrative forwarding interview, but it does include the sound of Pigpen dropping a lit cigarette ash behind the couch in the backstage trailer. A little more east. Ow, shit. Damnation. Boulder ash. And even before the success of the Dead's complimentary 1970 albums, Working Man's Dead and American Beauty, there seemed to be some commercial interest in a Pigpen solo project. It's probably not what you'd expect. That's a tiny bit of I'm a Lovin' Man from what Dead Scholars have determined to be a mid-1969 demo session from Mercury Records featuring Pigpen, with Jerry Garcia on pedal steel and Bob Weir on rhythm guitar, alongside some session musicians. We've pointed to Corey Arnold and Light Into Ash's magnificent research at dead.net slash deadcast. Pigpen's country project didn't quite take, but perhaps it did help focus his songwriting. Hey, Pigpen, let's do operator. Where's that capo? Where's that capo? Are we rolling? Operator, can you help me? Help me if you please. Give me the right area code and the number that I need. My right and left on the midnight. By 1970, Pigpen's act included the original Operator on American Beauty. That was from the Angel Share demo released with American Beauty 50 in 2020. Here's what Bobby Weir told us. Operator was sort of from left field as far as like it wasn't a blues tune it was a you know he used some you know blues sort of idiomology in some of his lines but really musically it was a it was something else it was like you know I'm not sure I could label it but it was I wouldn't consider it anything resembling a blues it was a kind of a surprise to me and you know, I lived with him at that point. Uh, you know, I, I thought I knew. I, I thought I knew the kind of stuff he had up his sleeve, but this this one came out of nowhere. The year before that, Robert Hunter had written "Easy Win" for Pigpen to sing, which wound up on Working Man's Dead. He'd also started playing a few folk blues tunes in the Dead's acoustic sets, some of which he'd played in the old days. Usually, his sets were pretty short—one or two songs. At the Family Dog in San Francisco in April 1970. The band was workshopping their Evening with the Grateful Dead format under an assumed name when Pigpen played, by his standards, a marathon solo set. Six songs, nearly 20 minutes. It was released in 2013 as a double LP. It includes the only official example so far of Pigpen's improv springboard, Bring Me My Shotgun, which we heard about last time. You know, my mama told me, day that I left a door, Said you're going to have bad luck, son, and I don't care where you go. And I said, now, bring me my shotgun. Bring back just one or two shells. And if I don't get some competition, 
You know there's got to be a little trouble around here. There are a few shows in that window from the Fillmore's East and West where Pigpen played piano during the band's acoustic sets. They're worth seeking out. Sometime in 1969 or 1970, he continued work towards a potential solo album, recording a batch of four-track demos. Some of these tapes are what sometimes circulate as his lost album, though it's certainly not that. part of the dead social fabric, too, playing a role in the legendary softball matchups in 1970, with the dead ringers playing against the Jefferson Giraffes, which we talked about more in our Ripple episode. Here's what Bob Weir told us. Pigpen had the uh, good sense to not turn out for the team, but he did. Uh, he would sit behind the plate and call balls and strikes. And he was impartial. He, he, he did his best to be impartial, but uh, there, were some, uh, there was some back and forth there as well. There are more hints of a potential solo album in this period, referenced in internal Grateful Dead business documents. In one planning document for 1971, for example, John McIntyre listed it alongside various projects in progress by Jerry Garcia, Mickey Hart, and others. And in the summer of 1971, Pigpen introduced two more originals, Mr. Charlie and Empty Pages. Empty pages before my eyes do not deny or criticize. That was the sad, sweet, empty pages performed in Chicago on August 24th, 1971. Now Dick's picks 35. In the late summer, there's even evidence that Pigpen played a solo show in San Francisco possibly including the accompaniment of Merle Saunders, continuing the theme of Pigpen being friends with dead-affiliated keyboardists. We've linked to Corey Arnold's great research at dead.net slash deadcast. Where can I go? My paths are broken. Seems like your love is just a token. It was only weeks after that show that Pigpen entered the hospital for the first time. He was suffering from both a perforated ulcer and hepatitis. Here's Jerry Garcia speaking with Peter Simon in 1975. There was a week or so where everybody gave blood for him and everything like that, and he was in real bad shape, and that was when it looked like he was going to die. Actually, the thing of him getting that ill straightened him out way more than any talk from us. Hmm. And he was, in fact, really working at getting himself together. There's no question Pigpen was a serious alcoholic who needed to stop drinking. But it seemed to exacerbate a number of other underlying and undiagnosed health issues, which his family believes seriously contributed to his physical decline, likely including Crohn's disease. And without discounting anything about his mental health, it rarely seemed to manifest too drastically before that. Here's how Bob Weir described Pigpen on WMMR in 1976. He drank himself to death. 
He liked to drink. I don't think he was so much into escape as just into drinking. At some point, he moved back in with his parents to recuperate and also reconnected with his father. Though Phil was proud of his son's music career, he hadn't been terribly supportive about the whole dropping out of high school thing. Pigpen stayed off the road in the fall of 1971, returning in the winter looking gaunt but sounding pretty great. He even had a new holiday song to add to the band's repertoire. That was Run Rudolph Run at the Fox Theater in St. Louis, December 10th, 1971 released on the Listen to the River box set, which we covered extensively on season four of The Dead Cast. It was the weekend the dead crashed to Bar Mitzvah. Included in Pigpen's papers is the brown spiral notebook that you may have noticed on Pigpen's B3 in videos and photos of the Europe 72 tour. A few pages into it are the rooming assignments dated St. Louis Hilton, December 8th. In case you need anybody, Sam Cutler's in room 608, Garcia's in 606, Hunter in 607, Weir's in 611, Lesh is in 612, Kreutzmann's in 614, Heath's in 620, and Ramrod's in 601, Parrish's in 617. It also allows us to date this notebook as starting during Pigpen's return to the road in December 71. The front of the notebook has a few interesting details. Osley Stanley, Box 2000, Lompoc, California, <laughs> FPC, whatever that stands for. That'd be the federal penal camp. On the opposite side from the room assignments are Pigpen's chord sheets for a trio of the band's newer songs introduced that summer, Birdsong, Sugaree, and Brown-Eyed Women. I know we've painted a fairly wholesome picture of Pig in these past two episodes, but he is Pigpen. So I'll also add the detail that the notebook page contains some Manhattan phone numbers and the address for the psychedelic burlesque funhouse on 8th Avenue, not far from where the dead played at the Felt Forum in December 71. Ooh la la. You could look it up on the World Wide Web. The surrounding pages contain chords for many of the songs on Bob Weir's Ace, including Walk in the Sunshine, a song Pigpen never played on stage. It contains lyrics from Mr. Charlie and Chinatown Shuffle, cleaned up neatly, Probably not first drafts. There are words for the dead song now known officially as The Stranger, Two Souls in Communion. But Pigpen's title was apparently Stranger Here. But perhaps most intriguing, are something like 15 to 20 songs that seem to be completely finished from Pigpen's side, apparently copied over from other sheets with chord changes. There's one called Time to Go, dated 68-69, but most seem to have been written in 1971 and 1972. He calls this one Back Home. What time it is, I don't know. It's dark outside, and I know it's cold. It doesn't matter what it's like out there, because I'm with you, and it's warm in here. Don't speak a time, release your mind. You slip so easy to these arms of mine. Here's part of another. I can sell a glass of water to a drowning man. I can sell pen and paper to a man who got no hands. I can even sell money to a millionaire. Sell a man on death row the electric chair. 
but I can't even give my love to you. I'm all in a mess about what to do. Come on and take it, darling. It's here for free. It's the only thing I've got that's really part of me. I'm like the little shepherd boy crying wolf too many times. This time you got to rescue me because the love at stake this time is mine. Perhaps ill-advisedly, he joined the band's Europe 72 tour. He was not doing well, but he was not going to miss that Europe 72 tour. We discussed him a bunch during our long exploration of that tour, including a number of letters he wrote home, shared with us by Sully. This is a little bit from a letter to his parents from West Germany. All of the letters give little glimpses into his personality, and I'll point you back towards season five of The Dead Cats for much more. Hi, y'all. In Hamburg, no trouble at all. They stamped our passports upon leaving Denmark. Didn't entering Germany. Didn't even look at the bus. Rooms okay. Same old European hotel room. Little beds that are pushable together. No TV. Stupid radio. I disconnected mine. But good food. Fresh venison from the Black Forest. Stroganoff. All sorts of goodies. I had asparagus and ham. Ugh. <laughs> But uh, tasted other stuff that was good. Some plain white ginseng root from Garcia ought to be enough to last. Some red root from Allen, which is giving back. Pigpen sang his new songs most nights of the tour. I love Weeder's intro to Chinatown Shuffle from Paris. Right now, things are going to do what he willed. Donna Jean Godshow hung out with Pigpen a lot during the Europe 72 tour, the only time the two were in the band together. I never did get to be in the band with Pigpen when he was the Pigpen, you know, his, the, the full version of himself. And so what I got to experience was the latter version, which he was so sick, but he was just such a presence and such a sweet man and uh, just an amazing soul. And to this day, Pigpen, I'm a huge Pigpen fan. Just huge. And I, I just think he was amazing. And Pigpen was the first guy, at least in rock and roll and as far as I know, that had that freestyle thing, like turn on your love light. He was one of the innovators of that, really, way before his time. Pigpen's final version of Turn On Your Love Light, May 24th, 1972, at the Strand Lyceum in London. When you're doing something that is part of your life, that is who you are, and you get on that stage, and it just, it comes to the forefront forcibly. It just comes out. And I watched Pigpen do that because he was really sick. But his his vocals and his ad libs and his freestyling and on that Europe tour were just spot on. Just spot on. He was amazing. Though he was obviously not lacking for creativity, 
The European tour made things worse for Pigpen, contracting another case of hepatitis. What's clear from Pigpen's notebook is that he kept working on songs after his last stage appearance with the dead in June 1972, with compositions dated right up through February 1973. During these months, the dead crew apparently set up a miniature studio for him with a small cassette player, the very dawn of the compact cassette recording age in the dead's world. They fully expected him to recover, though there's a sad story of Pigpen visiting the band's rehearsal space not long before he died, and the band being too busy to come out and see him. Jerry Garcia, talking to Peter Simon in 1975. He hadn't been drinking for a year and a half at all, you know, zero. And, uh, but, you know, his body was just gone. It was just shot. It was beyond the point where, you, where it can repair itself. Mm. And that was the thing. That was the thing. Yeah. You know, finally, they did it. It wasn't, it wasn't as though he was on some kind of final bender and then killed himself. He was actually on the road to, you know, a new a new persona, a mm-hmm. new self. He'd been living with his girlfriend, Veronica. As he got sicker, they heartbreakingly broke up. TC. Big Ben kicked her out of his house. Yeah, the final descent. Well, I had seen him the week before. But uh, Paul Boucher, who was a DJ I knew at uh, KTAM, called me up with the news. He woke me up like at 8 in the morning. And my first response was, well, you know, I was going to see him later this week. I'll have to ask him what it was like. I was sort of half awake, you know, and it, I didn't put two and two together yet. We were prepared emotionally for it a full year and a half before because that was when he first went into serious illness. And then he recovered and slowly got himself back together and was back in the band and we were working and everything. And, and then he just snuck away, you know, which is really sort of, it was typical of him. Mm-hmm. You know, it was typical of the kind of person he was. Despite Garcia's words, they probably weren't really emotionally prepared for it. With the instigation of Robert Hunter, Bob Weir hosted what Weir described as an informal wake-slash-riot. It was pouring rain, and dozens crammed into the house, with many more covering the hillside out back. Weir later said, outside it was an orgy, and he apparently meant that somewhat literally. According to Dennis McNally's biography, some 500 attended, according to a count made that night. A few weeks after Pigpen's death, his father, Phil, wrote a two-page letter addressed to the Grateful Dead, which survives in the Dead's archives. It feels too personal to read in its entirety, but in part. The real purpose of this note is to express my most profound thanks for that which you all gave Ron that is beyond price and of far greater value than I ever gave him when he was with us in his younger days. You gave him, or perhaps he found with you, something which many of us never find a purpose and meaning for life. It's a message from a grieving father, perhaps putting undue blame on himself, in part a fan letter, and mostly a message of love. Yeah, all of a sudden it's not the same group. Right. You know, it's a different group. We don't have that anymore. What we have is a more group-like identity, probably. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's definitely different. It's, it's hard to say. It's not a question of better or worse. It's just mm-hmm. different. It's impossible to measure what Pigpen's death did to the Grateful Dead, except to observe the absence of his musical presence. There was a rowdy, drunken wake at Weir's new place in Mill Valley. The week after that, the dead were back on the road. And I remember Joe Gaswert telling me he was at this show. Joe Gaswert uh, has worked with the dead for, well, 35 years or more. And he was at that Nassau show 
And he just said there wasn't a dry eye in the house. Like every single person in there knew what that he's gone was for because the word was obviously out. The pig pen had passed. And even the band, the sadness coming off the band. And I think it was a nice touching tribute of the dead to do that as the second song of the show. You know, we know he's gone isn't necessarily about the loss of it's not at all about the loss of pig pen, but it was a, a very nice moment. And I've heard that version so many times and you can hear it's extra poignant. It's extra meaningful. Written about the swindling manager, Lenny Hart, the song's meaning changed in a flash. A goodbye to Pigpen, and eventually, a goodbye to anybody who might need saying goodbye to. Another tribute was published in 1974 by the poet Diane de Prima of The Diggers, titled For Pigpen. It was the memory of a distant acid test. We've posted a link at dead.net slash deadcast. It read, in part, Velvet at the edge of the tongue, at the edge of the brain. It was velvet at the edge of history. Sound was light, like tracing ancient letters with your toe on the floor of the ballroom. They came and went, hotel guests like the great Gatsby and wondered at the music. Sound was light. Jagged sweeps of discordant light, aurora borealis over some cemetery, a bark, a howl. At the edge of history, and there was no time. Pigpen's closest friends in the dead scene was sound engineer and LSD chemist Owsley Stanley. Please welcome back to the dead cast his son, Starfinder. My dad told me that he didn't smoke pot often, but he had asked my dad for some pot pretty soon before he died. And when when they went over to his place after he passed, Bear said he found a half-smoked joint from the pot that he'd given him. And um, he picked it up and he said he, he lit it up and took a toke and it it floored him. He said it was one of the most intensely psychedelic experiences that he'd had. And, you know, he grew that pot. He knew that pot. <laughs> that was not what that pot usually did to him. In the summer of 1973, the Grateful Dead issued an LP titled The History of the Grateful Dead, Volume 1, Bear's Choice, which was framed in part as a tribute to Pigpen, featuring a handful of performances from the Fillmore East in February 1970. We'll be discussing it at length another time. But one person who was definitely not ready to say goodbye was Pigpen's father, Phil McKernan. In the mid-70s, he began to assemble and annotate all the Pigpen recordings he was able to find, compiling his findings into a notebook and curating the best takes. Ron's dad was documenting just the boxes of music that, you know, were found in his, you know, home in Cornamadera. Phil was uh, documenting his son's you know, all the different recordings that, that he had accumulated. 
and he had the gear to do it. I mean, the stuff in his back room there, the few times I ever entered that realm, I'll tell you, man, that guy had the stuff. You know, the, the reel-to-reels and cassettes weren't even really happening much in the early days, of course. The Notebook is the work of a serious music fan and sessionographer, but also a grieving father. It's a clearly emotional and meaningful project, containing Phil's handwritten transcriptions of his son's vocal extemporizations, multiple projected track lists, an attempt to date recordings, and some important clues for pigographers wondering about what might have been. And he just, you know, page after page of stuff. Obviously, I only have a fraction of it. You know, I really don't. I mean, a lot of the stuff, I have no idea where it ended up. The notebook makes clear that Phil had pretty specific plans for the material. Pigpen sings the blues and other, t- and other tales. He must be in good taste, not flamboyant. So here's an album cover. And indeed, there's a little thumbnail sketch of a projected LP with room for notes by Phil on the back and a poem by Pigpen's sister, Carol. What's very, very clear is that the recording that sometimes circulates as Pigpen's lost album is only a non-definitive assortment of tracks. Phil's notes indicate that most of the public versions are from four-track reels dated 1969 and 1970, seemingly from the collection of Mickey Hart, making this pigographer speculate that they represent some of the earliest sessions from Mickey's barn studio in Nevada. In fact, some tapes do exist in the dead vault. Grateful Dead archivist and legacy manager David Lemieux. I think we've all seen it around. It was a, a recording session, a session. It was, it was not a session. It was pig and a guitar in a, in a kitchen, I guess. We've heard those. There are a few other things for sure that are on, I think, four track tape. There's a tape, Pigpen's Last Will and Testament. This last tape is one of several that hasn't ever made its way into the world. A six song recording that was, according to one story, still in the tape machine when Pigpen died. Though Phil's inventory shows a few others listed after. Put another way, there's still a whole lot of Pigpen left to uncover from pretty much all eras of his musical life. Phil McCurden notes that the master of Pigpen's last tape came from longtime Grateful Dead sound engineer and Pig's close friend, Owsley Stanley, Starfinder. When I was a kid, when Bears tapes were living in the vault up in uh, Belmer and Keys, going to the vault with my dad and he was going through tapes, looking at things and he'd, he'd pull out a tape and he'd look at it and he'd start talking about the show. Like he, he had a memory, like, you know, he'd pull out a tape. He'd be like, Oh yeah, I remember this show. And he'd start talking about it, pull out another tape and he'd look at it and say, Hmm, it says weird. Could be good. <laughs> but not so. <laughs> and he pulled out that tape and he looked at it uh, and he started crying. Like little tears rolling down his face. And it's like, you know, I this was the last tape that Pigpen was working on, you know, when he when he passed. You know, we went working on on the songs. It just stuck with me. I I don't think I'd ever seen him cry before. It was uh, you know, but he loved Pigpen so so deeply. It was just uh just a horrible loss for him. The tape ends with a song titled So Long and includes the Robert Hunter solo composition, Maybe She's a Bluebird which he would include the following year as the final song on side A of his own solo debut, Tales of the Great Rum Runners, but apparently wrote it for Pigpen. I can totally imagine Pig singing it. All of my fancy All of my dreams come true Just to be here with you For the last dream Hey 
all of my life starts to make sense now. I think I see what it means. Given its place, it's hard not to hear a resonance with the lyrics to Birdsong, Robert Hunter's elegy for Janis Joplin. Maybe you're a blooper Who will never fly away Not fly away No, not fly away And they were saying goodbye to Pigpen. We're certainly not saying goodbye to his music. Now and forever, one of the Grateful Dead. We'd like to thank our guests in this episode, Jim Sullivan, Tom Constantin, Denise Kaufman, Eric Thompson, Starfinder Stanley, David Lemieux, Kay Alexander, and Mike Dolgushkin. Extra special thanks to friend of the Deadcast, David Gans, for contributing audio from his interview archive. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and keep your tour stories coming by recording yours over at stories.dead. Net. Executive producers for the good old Grateful Dead cast, Mark Pincus and Doran Tyson. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mahan Productions and Jesse Jarno. Special thanks to David Lemieux. All rights reserved.